Welcome to City on a Hill Community Church. We're glad you're here. Well, um, I bumped Pastor James this morning, off the, this morning off the schedule. So many of you, oh, who clapped? <laughs> Had to be Megan. Uh, Uncle Paul clapped. Um, don't worry, he will be back next week. But uh, this morning, I think God wants to say something to us as a, as a people, as individuals, as the people of God. How many of you remember uh, an old fairy tale called The Emperor's New Clothes? Oh, you, I, I don't want to say the older people, but some of you younger folk remember it too. It's a cute little fairy tale that goes like this. Uh, There was an emperor who was just, what he cared about most was his robes. And uh, so he wasn't very interested in his subjects, as I said, just interested in his robes and how he looked. And one day he heard that there was this man that was selling this incredible yarn that was so amazing that it was just not to be believed. The only thing about this yarn was that you couldn't see it if you were stupid or you didn't belong in the job you were in. So hmm, when the emperor heard about this amazing yarn, he thought, well, I have to have this. So what did he do? He sent two of his subjects to go and check out the yarn. So when they got there, Do you think, of course, the yarn was invisible and there was no such thing. This was was just a uh, a shyster who was selling this. So the two men from the king go to see this yarn and they walk up to the man and he says, what do you think of it? And he says, of course, you won't see it if you're stupid or you don't belong in your position. So they say, oh, it's just beautiful. I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like it. They go back to the king, and they give the king their report. And the king says, what do you think of it? And he says, they say, it was just lovely. So the king said, oh, wonderful. So he said, bring bring it back to me. So they do. They bring it back to to the emperor. And he says, oh, my goodness, it's everything you said it was. I want the finest robes made out of this yarn. And so he gets his best tailor, and the tailor makes a robe out of this invisible yarn, and the emperor says, well, I must, I just must parade, I must be, parade myself in front of my people. I just need to show them how beautiful these robes are. And so there he goes, and he walks through his crowd with his invisible robe. And all of the people crowd the streets, and they say, oh, it's lovely. Oh, isn't it gorgeous? Oh, they're not going to look stupid, right? They don't want to look like they don't, they don't see it. Everybody's marvelous. I've never seen anything quite like it. Suddenly, from the back of a crowd, you hear a little child say, he doesn't have any clothes on. Hmm. An amazing story that really to me, really talks a lot. Maybe we call it today the elephant in the room. Maybe we'd call it today. You know, one of the things that I have found um, in my years 
with the woman in the mirror and counseling people. I've realized that some of the darkness the Bible talks about isn't just wickedness. It's an amazing ability we have as human beings to keep the truth from ourselves. It's called something, you know, psychologists call it denial. Um, it comes in all forms. It's personally in our own lives. It's in our family lives. It's in our nations. It's an amazing, uh, incredible part of the fall of man that we can be so out of touch with reality and, and know it's there and have an ability to keep ourselves from seeing it. You know, one time, I don't know how many years ago, maybe my, my kids in here will tell me how long ago it was, we had a, a dog by the name of Oliver. He was an English Springer Spaniel. Yeah, I know some of you that are in this room that remember Oliver are snickering. Oliver was my baby. We got him when he was a little tiny, tiny puppy. And cutest little guy you ever want to see, white and black, and the white and black ears, just darling. And, um, sorry? Oliver. Oh. No, they didn't call that olives. They called it, um, yeah, now you got me. Liver. They called him liver. Liver and white. That's right. He wasn't black and white. Okay, sorry. Whatever. Thank you for making me a liar. Over a... Whatever. Megan did it. Megan. You music people just keep stretching me all the time up here. I'll tell you, you're amazing. Michael, where are you? Where's Michael? There he is, Michael. So, Oliver. Oliver was my little tiny puppy. I loved him dearly. I mean, he slept with me. I mean, he just, I just loved him to pieces. He was the one dog I had really raised from, from, from a puppy. But suddenly, Oliver was about a year old. And we started noticing that every once in a while, Oliver would act kind of strange. You know, you'd just be walking past him, you know, and you'd just be kind of, all of a sudden you'd hear, and you'd be like, what? My baby, my little baby. No, 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 I, I know what it is. I just, I woke him from his sleep. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, he was probably sleeping, and I just made him nervous, and that's why he started to growl. You know, or, or the kids would come in and they'd be playing and somebody would come in and they'd say, Daddy, Oliver just growled at me. And we'd be, I'd be like, honey, let me take care of this. You, what, did you, what were you doing to the dog, huh? What did you do to the poor dog? Leave the dog alone and he won't growl at you. I mean, okay, okay, right here, guilty. One day, strange, the one time, it never happened before, never happened again, Joe fell asleep in his recliner watching TV, and I tried to wake him up. He wouldn't go to bed. He wouldn't. He was like, just, you know, I'll, I'll be up in a little while. Anybody ever do that? Yeah. Thought so. And he never came to bed. He was sound asleep all night in the recliner. Well, early in the morning, James went downstairs, and, you know, kids do on Saturday morning. He turned on the cartoons, and there he was watching the cartoons, and all of a sudden, the kid rolled. Joe just happened to open his eyes, to see James roll over and this dog pounce on him and bare his teeth and growl. Had Joe not been there, I don't know what would have happened because the dog probably would have bitten him right on his face. 
So, well, you know, I begged Joe, could we take his teeth out and keep them? <laughs> it, there must be something we can do. They think I'm kidding, I know. We found out it was something called rage syndrome, which some dogs get from inbreeding. And they suddenly, at about a year old, they just totally, this takes over them. And we found out later, I mean, it was one of the times, um, one of the times, you know, sometimes we believe in shared leadership in our house, you know, most of the time, until something, we hit a wall, and then Joe says, the dog is going. Don't even ask. Don't even think about it. The dog is going. Don't you love women sometimes when our husbands have to make those tough decisions? I wouldn't have made the decision. I don't know if I could have. I mean, if I had to choose between James and Oliver, it was tough. <laughs> it was just tough. That's all I can say. But you didn't know, you're thinking I'm a bad mother, but you didn't know James at seven. <laughs> so you can laugh. Okay. Okay. Payback next week. It's amazing, isn't it? Such, we're so able to be disconnected. When I think of disconnect, the ultimate disconnect, talking in church anyway. Do you remember the scene in The Godfather? Where here they are in church baptizing this beautiful baby. Remember, you're all remembering, right? And you know the other scene, what's going on as his orders, the Godfather's orders are being carried out. What an amazing, how can people disconnect like that? Well, we all have an ability to disconnect like that. That is why when we read in the scriptures that God is truth, what does truth mean? It means this. God lives in reality. And you know what reality is? Reality is seeing things the way God sees them. That's really what reality is. So we, as Americans, find ourselves at a very um, critical, shall we say, juncture. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been viewing your CNN or your Fox News this week, but I don't know that I ever thought I would live to see the kind of things that we viewed this week, the kind of protests and the kind of violence that was all over this globe this week that was anti-American. I mean, I grew up, you know, we, I grew up seeing some anti-American sentiment, of course, over the years, but never did I think I would ever see what I, what I have been seeing. And so here we are, here we are in our country getting ready for this election. And we, we, in so many ways, are polarized as parties, as people, in so many aspects in America today. And I want to just come to you with my heart this morning and start by telling you, I don't come as a Democrat or a Republican to you this morning. I don't come as a liberal. I don't come as a conservative. I come to you, and, and I come to you with the other leaders of this church. We come to you as shepherds of God's people. And I want to tell you that uppermost, what I, I do believe is that 
Anyone who thinks that if they get their guy in the White House and all of our problems are going to go away is in for a rude awakening. I love what Max Lucado said. He said, it's not going to be who's in the White House. It's going to be who's on the throne. And so here we are, not only as Americans in this room this morning, and I want to tell you as well that I'm not here as a patriot of America, although I love America. I love America. But from the Word of God, I see that my first citizenship is not as an American. It's as a, as a, a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so that is how I greet you this morning as I start to just take a few ste steps into some difficult things, some scary things for, for probably most of us. But again, I think that reality is our friend. Foremost and uppermost in my mind, I want to see people in the offices of this land who see clearly, who aren't cheering for the emperor's new robes that aren't there, but a people that have true clarity and discernment and wisdom in the hour that we, in the hour that we find ourselves, not only as Americans, but on this globe, all around this world today. So it's, it's in light of that that I, that I come to you. Um, when I say to you that I come to you not firstly as a patriot, let me just tell you this, that doesn't mean I don't believe in the process. I totally encourage everyone as a Christian to get out and vote, to take seriously your vote, to be praying and seeking God about who you're going to vote for, why you're going to vote for them. I believe, I believe that God calls people into politics, but I believe you better be called. Because <laughs> if you're not, wow, you're, you're navigating a, a, a landmine. But I do believe, I mean, we have scriptures from whether it be Joseph or Daniel, we have so many illustrations from the Word of God of holy men of God that found themselves in the middle of very unjust and unrighteous governments, and yet they walked with God and they remained true to their God and they walked in righteousness. So let me just say, even though it'll come to you as a patriot, I, I am patriotic in that sense, and I do believe as Christians we kind of have to... That's the way I think the Word would instruct us to, to see things. Well, um, what, what exactly is going on in America today? Um, I want to hold up to you a book by... Uh, a gentleman, a brother in the Lord by the name of Joel Rosenberg. And uh, Joel's um, parents were converted to Christ, Orthodox, his father was an Orthodox Jew, and his mom was, uh, come, came out of a Gentile family. But uh, 1973, his dad, his dad and mom were saved. Uh, Joel jokingly says he thought that he was the first and the only Jew to love Jesus since Peter and Paul. He didn't know there was any others in 1973. Well, there's a whole lot more since then, thank God. But um, Joel, um, he, comes to, he comes to us. He's a uh, 
communication strategist that was in, based in Washington, D.C. He served as a senior advisor on two U.S. presidential campaigns, an aide to some of the world's most influential leaders in politics, business, and the media. A front-page Sunday New York Times profile called him a force in the Capitol. And uh, he's written a number of books, none of which I had ever read, some of them that were fiction, um, some of them having to do with um, the end days, um, his take. I, I love Joel Rosenberg. I love him because I love the way he approaches things. I feel he's very intelligent and very reasonable. And I love the way he approaches um, not only Israel, but Israel's neighbors. I mean, sometimes I think we can just... Um, get so sidetracked by some issues that we forget that above all we're to be ambassadors of the love of Jesus Christ to everyone. I love the way he moves and uh, he, he's someone who supports not only Israel but Israel's neighbors and, uh, and is interested in seeing that the Palestinians have their human needs met as well. So uh, this is a book called Implosion and this is Joel's latest book and it's, it's fairly new. Uh, I suggest anybody who would be interested, um, I think it's a good read for anybody, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. One of the things that Joel said in the beginning of, of this book, I'm going to do, do a few quotes from it, not too many, because I have a half-hour video I want you to see. Um, but one of the things that Joel said, he said, you know, whenever I move in the Senate or among Congress or uh, in, in D.C., he said, you know, usually the, the question that people would ask me, he said, is, how does a Jew, Jewish man accept Jesus as their Messiah? And he said that was the common question he was asked wherever he went. He said, you know, that question has changed. He said that it's often that a congressman or a senator will take him on the side and say, listen, do you really believe in this end end of the age stuff, this end of the world stuff? Do you really believe this stuff? Do you think, does the Bible tell you anything about America and what happens to America? He said, it's amazing how many people are asking this question wherever you go. He said, it's amazing to him how nervous and anxious so many of our uh, our." our elected leaders are. They don't have the answers, and they know they don't have the answers. Um, now, he said whether they were conservatives or liberals made no difference. Um, he said even, he said, you see it even mainstream media. Let me give you a few um, top, uh, some uh, highlights. A 2009 high headline in U.S. News and World Report declared nine signs of America in decline. 2010, Salon.com published a story entitled How America Will Collapse, Four Scenarios That Could End, That Could Spell the End of the United States as We Know It. 2011, Time published a cover story with the headline, Are America's Best Days Behind Us? 2011, an article in Psychological, Psychology Today was titled, Why America is in Decline. Um, and I can go on and on. I don't, I don't want to bore you with more and more and more, but... He also mentions um, the quintessential book capturing the depths of anxiety was written, The End of America, A Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot. Some of you may know her. It was written by Naomi Wolf, who is an, a liberal author, feminist, and political activist 
who writes for the New Republic and the New York Times. And she says some things like this. I'm writing because we have an emergency. My sense of alarm comes from the clear lessons of history. Not the Bible, history. One certain checks and balance are destroyed and one certain institutions have intimidated. The pressures that can turn an open society into a closed one turn into direct assaults. At that point, events tend to occur very rapidly. And a point comes in which there's no easy turning back to the way it used to be. The fascist shift progresses in a buildup of many acts assaulting democracy simultaneously, which then form a critical mass. If fascist Germany, a medium-sized modern European state, could destabilize the globe in a matter of a few years, and it took a world war to overcome the threat, what force on earth might restrain an America that may have abandoned the rule of law, an America with its vastly greater population, wealth, and landmass, and a far more sophisticated technology? Uh, well, that's what she had to say. Um, even the mainstream, I said even the mainstream media, uh, some of you may know uh, Fareed Zakaria, he's a, a news a, a journalist on CNN, and he's not a, he doesn't call himself a liberal or a conservative. Uh, he doesn't consider himself either of those. And he wrote a um, much talked about book called Post-America World. He comes from India, made his home in America, and uh, uh, he's, he talks about um, how, how frightening the shifts that he sees uh, are going on. And, and this is what he says. He says, um, believe, Zakaria believes the United States is not only struggling not to collapse, but with other countries rapidly rising, we're growing, we are in growing danger of being left in the dust. He notes, now listen to this, the tallest building in the world is now in Dubai. The world's richest man is Mexican. Its largest publicly traded company is Chinese. The world's biggest plane is built in Russia and Ukraine. Its leading refinery is in India. Its largest factories are all in China. By many measures, Hong Kong now rivals London and New York as the leading financial center. I'd like to ask Mr. Canis if he agrees with some of this. He can let me know later, John. And the United Arab Emirates is home to the most richly endowed investment fund. Once quintessentially American icons have been appropriated by foreigners. The world's largest Ferris wheel, Singapore. Its number one casino is not Las Vegas, but in, I don't know this place, M-A-C-A-O. Where is that? Anybody know? Where is that? China which has also overtaken Vegas in annual gambling revenues. The biggest movie industry in terms of both movies made and tickets sold is Bollywood, not Hollywood. Even shopping, America's greatest sporting activity, has gone global. Of the top 10 malls in the world, only one is in the United States. The world's biggest is in China. Such lists are arbitrary, but it's striking that 20 years ago, America was at the top if not of many, if not most of all of those categories. I'm going to tell one more thing, and then we're going to, I'm going to show you something um, that I think we'll, we can talk about. Um, how bad the, the economy is today? Well, we could sit here and we can talk. Uh, again, I could get John up here, and John could tell us all what he thinks. According to a growing number of experts, if we don't drastically reduce government spending, balance the federal budget, and make sweeping fundamental reforms, 
to save and protect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, just to name a few of our biggest fiscal challenges, then the federal debt will continue to explode and the American economy will soon implode. He goes on to give a bunch of experts' uh, opinions in the book. Just let me finish up with this. The federal debt stood at $5.8 trillion at the end of 2008. The federal debt hit a record of $15.11 trillion on December 1, 2011. 2011, our debt-to-GDP ratio was staggering 100%. That is, in 2011, the United States owed as much money as our entire national economic output was in 2010. The national debt grew about $2 million a minute in 2011. The concept of going more than $15 trillion, that's trillion with a T, into debt with no end in sight is hard for most Americans to grasp. Maybe this will help. This comes from a website called DefeatTheDebt.com. If we were to pay $1 every second of every hour of every day of every month to pay down our national debt, it would take us almost 32,000 years just to pay off $1 trillion. To pay off $14 trillion would take more than 443,000 years. If we were to spend $10 million a day to pay down our national debt, it would take us about 273 years to get to $1 trillion. So it would take us about 3,822 years to pay off $14 trillion. $1 trillion is more than the number of stars in the Milky Way. It would take more than 10,018 wheelers to transport, to transport $1 trillion bills. Our national debt today would fill up 30 of the largest container ships ever constructed, each holding more than 4,100 containers full of cash. $15 trillion $1 bills laid end-to-end -end and side-to-side -side would pave every interstate highway and country road in America twice with a good amount left over. Well, whether it's our economy, whether we're seeing uh, in our... Um, in natural disasters, whether it's we hear the we hear the word um, uh, catastrophic and uh, we hear the words um, historic, um, biblical proportions, we hear all the time on the news describing national disasters these days. So in America, we have not uh, escaped. So now we've got we've got this. We've got our economy, um, and, and we've got uh, those are all of our, many of our internal threats. But they're not our external threat. And I'm about to show you a video from a general, a retired general from the Army. Um, he's a Christian. He's a minister today. Um, I thought it would be good for us to hear him because he, he's a man who has access and knowledge to things that the, we don't have. Um, he was at a conference of Joel Rosenberg's called the Epicenter Concert co Conference, I'm sorry, um, a few years ago. And uh, his name is Lieutenant Retired William Boykin. Let's give him our attention. Let's give the video our attention, please. I want to speak to you today on three levels. First, I come to you as a 
retired uh, general officer that uh, spent most of my career in special operations and uh, my last four years as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Secondly, I'm speaking to you as a concerned American who sees many things that portend what I consider to be a bleak future for our nation. Unless we as Americans and unless we as the body of Christ act now, and finally, I'm speaking to you as an ordained minister today and a follower of Jesus Christ who I believe will soon return to claim his bride. Yes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I was commissioned in 1970. I came in the Army in December of 1970 at what could otherwise be described as the height of the Cold War. The world at that time was bipolar, and that most nations were aligned with either the Soviet Union or the United States, the two superpowers, and each of us maintained a nuclear arsenal that could destroy the other, regardless of who fired the first shot. We called it mutual assured destruction. The world was a, a very dangerous place. And then when the Cold War ended, and uh, the disintegration of the Soviet Union occurred, uh, and the Americans were declared the victors. Many believed that we in the United States would never face another threat of that magnitude. And sadly, many Americans in our country today still believe that there's not a threat against this nation that can destroy us. Well, friends, I'm here to tell you today, it's my judgment that we as a nation face the greatest danger that we have faced since the American Revolution, since the time when it was all or nothing. It was freedom or tyranny, democracy or dictatorship. Today we face the greatest threat in our history. We're in great peril. And you know, it's the same kind of threat that the nation of Israel has faced since the 14th of May, 1948. And today America and Israel face a similar threat. We face an adversary who hates us and who believes that it is God-given directive to destroy us, to wipe us off the map. Let me say up front that I believe America's roots are Judeo-Christian. Yes. It's simply a historic fact. While we accept many religions, and just like we speak many languages, the fact remains that our founding fathers created this nation based on their fundamental belief in a sovereign creator, that being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that both Jews and Christians worship. All you have to do is read their early writings and their early speeches about their dependence upon God, and you realize that men like Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and George Washington and many, many others saw the importance of worshiping the sovereign God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and recognizing the contribution of the Jews, the early Hebrews. I'm one American who is very proud of what we've done as a nation in support of Israel. If you think, yes, amen. Against great opposition, Harry Truman signed a statement recognizing the state of Israel less than an hour after he was told of the Jewish Declaration of Independence. In fact, in his prepared speech, 
Truman marked out the words Jewish state and he hand wrote Israel. He was a man that was raised to understand the concept of Genesis 12 that says that those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. I'm proud of the history of this nation. In fact, most of you probably don't even realize it was an American army colonel, a World War II veteran named Mickey Marcus that went to Israel and organized their military and trained them and prepared them for war and was killed leading them in combat in 1948. It's also a little known fact that less than a week after telling in a letter telling the uh, king of Saudi Arabia that he would never support the founding of a Jewish homeland, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was dead and Harry Truman was in the office and able to make that decision to support the nation of Israel. In fact, Truman, before he was the vice president, said this, Today, not tomorrow, we must do all that is humanly possible to provide a haven for those who have been grasped in the clutches of the Nazi butchers. Free lands must be open to them. I'm proud of what we've done for Israel. I also would say to this audience today, we must support the Palestinian people. They, like the Jews, are God's people, and we must support them with humanitarian and economic assistance to ensure that they have a better quality of life and some hope for the future. I did not say we need to trade land for peace. Now let's return to the issue of threats. There are many that confront our nation today. You here in San Diego, you're well aware of the gang violence and the drug cartels that are fighting each other and just across our border to the south in Mexico. There are many threats that we face, ladies and gentlemen, many. I could go on all afternoon talking about the threats, but there's no greater threat than that threat posed by radical Islam. Many Americans have all but forgotten the events of 9-11. It's history, it's a faint memory, but it's very real to many of us, particularly those who lost people that they knew that were friends or family. We gotta remind ourselves, my friends, that those 19 radicals that crashed those airplanes on that day were simply the tip of the iceberg of a group of people who number in the millions. They're people who rise every day believing that it is their mandate from Allah to kill us as infidels, Christians and Jews and other non-believers and destroy America and Israel. They believe Allah has told them to do that. I said earlier that this is a more serious threat than the Soviet nuclear arsenal ever presented and I truly believe that. I believe that because during the Cold War at the end of the day there were people on both sides of the ocean who wanted to live. No one wanted to destroy their own country or destroy the entire world. They wanted to live. But think about it. Our adversary today wants to die because it's the only sure way to spend eternity in heaven with Allah. You see, in, in the Islamic faith, only Allah can decide where you spend eternity. He weighs the good against the bad, your sins against your good works, 
And whichever way the scale goes is where you spend eternity. I'm glad to say that because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at Calvary, at a hill called Golgotha, we decide as believers in Christ where we spend eternity because he paid the price. Now you ask, what do these jihadists want from us as Americans? And the answer is very simple. They want, they, in fact, they tell us what they want. They tell us clearly what they want. And that is that they want world domination. And they want for America to be defeated and converted to an Islamic state under Sharia law. Now if you don't take that seriously, let me show you something. I have in my hand a classified document. It was declassified on the 24th of uh, February. It is a classified statement by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of the 9-11 events. And this was statements from his trial down at Guantanamo. Let me tell you what he said in his own words. He said, killing you and fighting you, destroying and terrorizing you are all considered to be great legitimate duty in our religion. Secondly, he said in God's book, he ordered us to fight you wherever we find you. And then he went on to read the passage from verse 9 of the Altaba. Then fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them and besiege them and lie in wait in each and every ambush. His third statement, so in our act of jihad and our fighting with you, if our act of jihad and our fighting with you cause fear and terror, then many thanks to God because it is him that has thrown fear into your hearts which resulted in your infidelity, paganism, and your statement that God has a son and your trinity beliefs. He said, our prophet is victorious because of fear. So our religion is a religion of fear and terror to the enemies of God, the Jews, the Christians, and the pagans. And he said, America will fall politically, militarily, and economically. Your end is very near, and your fall will be just as the fall of the towers on the blessed 9-11. Keep in mind, that's the statement of the man that was behind the 9-11 tragedies. And in case you think that this man, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, is one of those fringe, far-out types, I want to assure you that he is not. His is exactly the view of millions of hardcore jihadists who have targeted America and Israel for subjugation to their God Allah. He is not alone in his stated intentions for America. Abdurman al-Moudi, the former head of the American Muslim Council, has observed openly whether it takes 10 years or 100 years, America will become a Muslim country. In November 2001, documents were found in a villa in Switzerland by Swiss police that contained a plan for radical Islam to infiltrate and dominate the West and establish an Islamic government on earth that became known as The Project. 
Counterterrorism and radical Islam expert Patrick Pools has written a summary of the key points of the strategy outlined in the project. Let me read you a couple of them. There, there are many. I'm just going to read you a few. One, this is their strategy. Inflaming violence and keeping Muslims living in the West in a jihad frame of mind. Making the Palestinians cause, the Palestinian cause a global wedge for Muslims. Using deception to mask the intended goals of Islamist actions. Instigating a constant campaign to incite hatred by Muslims against Jews and rejecting any discussion of reconciliation or coexistence with them. Another document found right here in the United States in a known terrorist apartment said the following, the Ikhwan, which is brotherhood, talking about the Muslim Brotherhood, a terrorist organization created in Egypt in the 20s. The Ikhwan must understand that all their work in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging their miserable house. I think it's prudent at this point for me to tell you that for 36 and a half years I supported and defended the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, wearing an army uniform. That means I supported the freedom of worship. And I support today the right of every Muslim to worship in this country as they please. But when their religion threatens the future of my children and my grandchildren and the freedoms that we've enjoyed that were given to us by our founding fathers and to the almighty creator, when they threaten those in the name of their God, I will fight to the death to stop them. It's a fact that most Muslims in this country are not, I say again, are not jihadist. There are many ways to estimate the percentage of the 1.5 billion Muslims in the world who are jihadist. I think the best estimate is probably around 15%. 15% are followers of the theology that requires them to kill infidels and establish a global caliphate under Sharia law. Sharia law is Islamic law as provided in the Quran. One of the tenets is there can be no man-made laws, only God-given laws. Now, if 15% sounds like an insignificant number, I ask you to think about this. In 1917, only 3% of the Russians were communist. In 1924, only 3% of the Germans were Nazis. What they had in common was they had radical, brutal leadership. And we saw where that led. We saw that a 3% minority could have a tremendous influence, not only on the other 97%, but on the world as a whole. And that's my concern today, is the brutality of this 15% and the intimidation factor on the 85%. The question is, where's the outrage from the 85% majority who state the jihadists do not represent their brand of Islam or their interpretations of the Quran? Is the 85% afraid 
to be heard on the subject? Well, the fact is there are some very brave Muslim leaders who have come out against this kind of jihadist behavior. And they are indeed brave people. They've risked their lives to do that. And God bless them. But I say this, where's the rest? Where's the, where's the outrage? Where are the rest? Are they so intimidated that they're unwilling to speak out or do they secretly support the objectives of the jihadist? And only they can answer that. So what are the chances that they can attack us again here at home? Though the fact is, there have been over 3,000 Islamic terrorist attacks around the world since 9-11. And there have been at least 14 attacks right here in America. They've been trying to hit us again. There have been some that you haven't even heard about. I happen to know about them from my previous job. Think back to the summer of 2006 when with our British allies' support, we discovered and stopped an attack that would have seen airplanes coming out of London, coming into America and crashing into U.S. cities. How many Americans would have been killed if we hadn't stopped that one? Do you remember when they were going to blow up the fuel storage facilities at JFK Airport? You remember the planned attack on Fort Dix where they planned to kill as many military people as they could? Remember this saying, it's, it's trite but it's true. We have to be right every time. They only have to be lucky once to kill thousands of Americans. Let's look at one terrorist concept. I'm going to show you a video now. I want you to Pay close attention to what this guy says. It's about two minutes long. And I want you to take this very seriously. Could we see the video? كفيلة بقتل ثلاثمائة وثلاثين ألف أمريكي في ساعة واحدة إذا أتقن نفرها على الوعاء السكاني هناك مرعبة الفكرة يعني 11 سبتمبر تطلع زلاطة عند الموضوع هذا صح ولا لا؟ وما في داعي طيارات وشكبانات ومواعيد وقصة من المؤامرات والتوقيتات واحد عنده من البسالة اللي يدخل مع أربع أرطال من الأنثراكس ويدخل حديقة البيت الأبيض صح ولا لا وكت عليهم النون النون هذا صح ولا لا ويبب عقبها تصير المسألة تماشى هناك WMD مشكلة خايفين الأمريكان أنه WMD يطيح بإيد تنظيمات بين قوسين إرهابية I hope that gets your attention It's a very serious situation The threat of more attacks on this country are very real. I presume that most of you over the last couple of weeks have seen the news coverage of the 35 
Muslim compounds in our nation, scattered all across the country. What are these compounds being used for? What goes on behind the veil of secrecy in these places? And we know unequivocally, without any doubt, that these jihadists are trying to pursue weapons of mass destruction. In fact, they've even stated openly that they want weapons of mass destruction to bring destruction to the United States and Israel. And the president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, which is a tough thing for a boy from North Carolina to say. <laughs> this rabid fanatic, this jihadist, is more than eager to help them get nuclear materials. More on him in a moment. Ask yourselves this, how difficult would it be for them to bring something across our border? Anthrax, four pounds he talks about in this video. Or even a dirty bomb, a nuclear dirty bomb. Doesn't take much to build one. When Joel was writing his book, Inside the Revolution, he and I sat for a long time and discussed the scenarios dealing with attacks on the U.S. by Islamists. He outlines my thoughts in the book. Let me share a couple of them with you. A dirty bomb would not be that difficult to bring into the United States. It's only nuclear materiel. It's not a weapon. It's exploded with conventional explosives. The point of it is it gives some level of contamination and the fear factor, the intimidation, the psychological impact of having a nuclear detection as a result of these would be devastating. If it happened in Washington, I believe it would shut our government down for some period of time as people tried to evacuate that city, which by the way would be very difficult if you know anything about Washington. I'm very concerned about terrorists bringing nuclear materials in to construct a dirty bomb off the coast of North Carolina or Virginia and driving it up to Washington. I outlined several scenarios for Joel, but I don't have time to go through them today. In the interest of time, I would simply say that the probabilities are very high, that they can get these things into our country and conduct an attack on us. You know, I talked about Ahmadinejad. Let me say a couple of things about him. First of all, he is a maniac. But he is not crazy. In fact, let me say that if you make the mistake of thinking he's just a crazy, you're making a serious mistake. The intelligence community profile on him says that he has been a rabid, committed jihadist since he was about 10 years old. He unquestionably believes that he is ordained by Allah to usher in the Islamic Messiah the Mahdi or the 12th Imam. He also believes that the Mahdi will return in an atmosphere of chaos and bloodshed and it's his responsibility to create the chaos and the bloodshed that would bring the Mahdi back. The Mahdi would then establish his rule over the world and there would be a global adherence to Sharia law or Islamic law and Islam would be the world religion. This is what he believes and he is very serious about it. Even the International Atomic Energy Agency has now acknowledged that his nuclear program is moving rapidly towards weaponization. His number one target is Israel and he has made no secret of the fact that he intends to destroy 
this small nation of Jews. His statements like, they must be wiped off the face of the earth, talking about Israel. And imagine a world without America or Israel. Those statements leave no doubt about his intention. He plans to destroy Israel and the United States. And the real sad thing is we've become so complacent about his statements that we don't even take him seriously anymore. And I'm telling you, he's very serious. He plans to do it. He intends to destroy Israel. And theologically, he has no inhibition about it. Because the fact of the matter is, if he can fire a nuclear weapon on Israel and kill a million or more Israelis, in his theology, they spend eternity in hell. And even if the Israelis return with a nuclear strike that kills five or ten million Iranians, all of those Iranians become martyrs and they spend eternity with Allah. That's his theology. And by the way, the result of his actions against the Jews triggers the coming of the Mahdi, which is his goal because that's what he's been directed by Allah to do. This is a serious man and one who I believe would provide weapons-grade precursors to terrorists that were going to use them against Israel or the United States. He would do so very readily and be very happy about it. We've talked about the threats of terrorist attacks on our nation and the seriousness of these threats, but I want to tell you that I think the greatest danger in our future is really one of complacency and capitulation. The fact is that many Americans have already surrendered to the jihadists. They refuse to even try to know the truth about what these people's intention is. Many have become apologists for these radicals. You see, I believe that the ultimate goal of these terrorist attacks is not really to physically destroy America. I believe it's to bring us to a point of such fear and trepidation that we're willing to do anything for peace and security. In fact, that's exactly where we're headed. We use the term multiculturalism, tolerance, and understanding to describe our willingness to accept this Islamic extremism. And when we speak openly against what's happening in our nation, we're, we're labeled Islamophobes and intolerant bigots. I've been through that drill. And I will tell you, I intend to stand and continue sounding the alarm because I believe in it. So many Americans are just oblivious to what's happening right here at home. I could stand here the rest of the afternoon and tell you about the things that are occurring in our country. I could tell you about the kinds of things that are happening right here in California, where school systems in Byron, California, were teaching children. I ran a three-week course where they were teaching children how to pray and how to read verses from the Quran and encouraging them to adopt Muslim names and fast for Ramadan. Could you get away with that if that had been Christianity? Absolutely not. The millions and millions of dollars that are being brought into our country and our universities, Saudi money to set up Islamic studies programs. That's nothing but propaganda. The madrasa schools all over our country, including right in our nation's capital, 
in northern Virginia that are teaching that Jews and Christians are pigs and monkeys. It's happening in our country, and we're watching it. The trial recently that was completed in November down in Dallas called the Holy Land Trial, the Holy Land Foundation Trial. That trial, the courts in this country actually stated that most of the Muslim organizations in this country are associated with Islamic terrorism. That came from the trial. That's not my words. That's theirs. And one of the best known, uh, in fact, most recognized Muslim leaders in this country, Abdurman al-Moudi, who was an advisor to two presidents, who in fact set up the Muslim chaplains program in the United States military, who was recognized as being the most prominent Muslim in our country, was caught in 2003 at Heathrow Airport with $340,000 that he got from Muammar Gaddafi to try and kill the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. He turned out to be a hardcore terrorist. But I could show you pictures of him with our presidents and our vice presidents. And I could show you newspaper articles where he was recognized as a great man. And this is happening in our country. It goes on and on and on. Ladies and gentlemen, we're facing a serious threat. I'm out of time. And I've got more notes that I could share with you this afternoon. We're facing a serious threat. I'm going to close with this. For those of you, and I hope that when you have a break that you'll go out and buy my uh, autobiography, Never Surrender. It's part of how they're, use, they're using that to help raise funds to support this conference here. I get nothing from it, but I hope you'll buy it. And I describe a situation in that book that I want to talk to you about right now in closing. Most of you who know anything about me, you know that in 1993, I was in Mogadishu, Somalia, as the events that we called Black Hawk Down began to unfold. I was the commander of the Delta Force. And I've faced these radicals that I'm talking about today. I've faced them. I've seen them. I saw them in Iran when they mutilated the bodies of our men that were killed when we tried to rescue 53 Americans held by the Ayatollah Khomeini. I saw a CN International showed their bodies being mutilated and desecrated. And in Mogadishu, Somalia, on the 3rd of October, 1993, as we got into a fight that was later called Black Hawk Down, I watched on a black and white television as the bodies of five of my soldiers were dragged through the streets of Mogadishu and desecrated and mutilated. And my most vivid memory there's a five-ton truck coming in on the airfield with bodies stacked up in the back of it, dead on the bottom, wounded on top. And as I walked out to drop the tailgate, someone got to it ahead of me, and as the blood poured out the back of that truck, it broke my heart. And I went and sat on my bunk when the sun went down, and I began to cry, and I said, where is God? Until I was so angry, I finally said, there is no God. There is no God. But the moment I said, there is no God, I felt God speaking to me in a voice like I had never heard it before. And he said, if there's no God, there's no hope. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you the rest of that. If there is a God, he's the only hope.
That's right. I repented of my disbelief. I had a crisis in faith, and today I preach the gospel wherever they'll have me. But I will tell you, if there is a God, there is, and there is. He's the only hope. And I'm here to assure you today, the only hope that America has is if we as the body of Christ, we as Americans, will turn to God and ask for his blessings upon this nation. He's the only hope. We're in a serious situation. And God is the only hope. Let's get in the battle. Let's be on our knees. Let's pray this country through this crisis. It's a pleasure being with you. God bless you. Let me tell you, just give me five more minutes. I know you've been sitting for a long time. I promise I won't keep you. If you don't, th if you don't think it was a battle for us to show this, it was, it was, we thought about it. We thought, is it too tough? Is it too... I mean, he is a commander. This was 2009. How things have even descended since then. But you know what? This is a man who knows what he has seen. And we're not showing you this this morning because we're trying to in, instill fear in any of us. But if the emperor doesn't have any clothes on, then what's wrong with us if we keep cementing each other to lies? There is a man who says he wants to wipe Israel off the map and that we are the great Satan. And I want, I want to tell you a few things that is not the message for you to leave here with today. The message is not that we are anti-Muslims. You heard what he said. It's a small percentage of radical uh, Islamists that are behind this. Second of all, the Bible says clearly in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in the present age. Brothers and sisters, this is not flesh and blood. There is a spiritual battle that has been going on since the beginning of time. And when we talk about the end of time, the end of the age, the DVDs we're showing, I want to tell you that the people that I have most respect for all say the same thing. Nobody knows. Some people I greatly respect, Anne Graham Lutz, Billy Graham's daughter. We're going to have some clips during our prayer times of her. She's 63 years old and believes she will see, see it. Mike Bickle, who I also have some respect for in this field, he said he thinks it's 10 or 20, 20 years, a few decades away. I don't know if Mike is still saying that, but, I mean, nobody knows. Joel Rosenberg, nobody knows. That's why the Bible, Jesus himself was very clear. And he didn't, he said, don't try to make a day. When you start to pin down a day, you're in trouble. Crazy people have done that. But he did say, look for the seasons. He said, look at the fig tree when it starts to blossom. He's, and that fig tree's always been a, a picture of Israel in the Bible. Israel was the game changer in 1948 when she became a nation. Everything changed. It's amazing how the scriptures have opened up since that day. I don't know how far away it is. You don't know how far away it is. But brothers and sisters, for anybody who is a who is a, has an open mind and comes to the Bible seriously, I don't believe anybody could say 
it can be extremely far off. We're going to be spending a lot of time in these next weeks, and I don't know how long, in the book of Joel. And Just quickly, let me say this. Again, I brought it up last week. Book of Joel, um, people uh, were not sure about the timing, but it seems very apparent that Joel and Habakkuk and Zephaniah, all friends, all had this terrible job of telling the, telling the, the Israelites that if they didn't change their ways, if they didn't repent and turn around, God was about ready to allow a judgment. They had already, what was happening is they had locusts that had just brought starvation and, and just absolutely destroyed the land. And when they didn't heed that, God said, basically the next thing is, if you, if you don't hear that, there'll be a military invasion. Brothers and sisters, that's the principle all through the Word of God. That is what we see all through the Old Testament. We see it even in, even in the New Testament. When, when people don't get the alarms that God is sending, out, sending off, then God has to take his hand of favor and his hand of blessing off. And we have to all decide in this room. We're Christians in here. We're not in a civil auditorium right now. We're here because our faith is in this book. Are we people that believe that God is asleep somewhere, somewhere on some star? Or do we believe that God is still alive and aware and involved in human affairs? Well, this book says he certainly is. He's aware. He's alive. He's aware of your life and my life. He's aware of nations, and he is involved in his purpose, seeing his purpose accomplished. I mean, even God, who prophesied he would bring the Jews home, and from where they were scattered for thousands of years, still you see warfare all over the place. It doesn't mean because it was God's will it's easy. We are in for a battle. If you are somebody who believes the Bible, the Word of God, then I have to tell you, and I have to take my stand with other watchmen today who are bringing the same message. And it's not an easy message, and it's not a message that people want to hear. Frankly, it's not a message I want to bring. But my message is, things are not, things are not going to get better. Things are going to, this is the birth pangs we're experiencing. And those birth pangs, just, it's just like a woman in labor. They reach a crescendo, and then they die down. They reach a crescendo. Was 9-11 an alarm? And did America hear it for a month and then go back to sleep again? I think so. And I think that most people believe that we're ready. Everybody feels it. I mean, Joe and I just turned on Channel 24 the other day, and it was about an apocalypse. And they had all these people building, you know, places in the ground. And, and uh, one man who's going to get to a certain mountain at solstice in December, uh, uh, December 21st at the exact moment, and he's going to jump into the porthole of energy. I don't know what he was talking about. And he's going to save the whole world. I thought, I mean, the crazies. Uh, just, just like the enemy to confuse it all. So anybody who talks about any of these things looks like another crazy person. But I want to tell you, the second return of Jesus Christ is Orthodox Christianity. There is no Christian church that does not believe this. We be Jesus Christ died, crucified, ascended, and coming back again. He is coming back again. He really is. This is not a fairy tale. 
there is a Jewish man on the throne right now, and he is coming back to put his foot down on the Mount of Olives and to be the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And therefore, we're joining with many others across this land. I hope you'll be a part of it. And we're calling for a 40-day fast and prayer. Fast in any way that God leads you to do it. Daniel went on a, a fast where he ate no sweets. Whatever, whatever God puts on your heart. Maybe you want to fast from social media or uh, you want to fast from the television set so you can have time to pray. We're asking, there's a table in the back with all kinds of material. Please go back and visit it and take some. We're asking you to get in twos and threes to pray whether you do it on the phone or emails. We're asking you to take it seriously. And then we're meeting on Wednesday nights from now to the election with many of our brothers and sisters all over this country who have, who have heard the call. Listen, I want to tell you this. In 2 Chronicles 20, when Jehoshaphat, they were up against, they were totally surrounded by their enemies. And what did Jehoshaphat do? Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, called a fast. He got the people on their knees to pray and they sought God. And then a prophetic word came and said, I'm going to be with you. Praise me. And they, what did they do? They came against this great army with praise and worship. And their enemies were defeated. Is that just a little fairy tale story? No, it's a picture of this. We need spiritual weapons at this hour. We're not talking about guns and we're not talking about going to build a, a place in the ground. so that We're saying, get on our knees. We're saying, get to God. We want God's favor and God's blessing. Maybe God will turn it around and we'll have a third great awakening. I'm not ready to give in and say, okay, we're defeated and it's hopeless and it's all over. I'm ready to say, Christians, let's pray and ask God for mercy. Let's ask him to hold his hand. And if this is him, say, God, please give us more time. God, please forgive us our sin if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves fasting and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and I'll heal their land. That was a promise to Israel, not to us, but it's a principle of God. And I'm asking, I'm saying, let's not be those passive, complacent people we heard the, the general talk about. Our biggest enemy is complacency. Is, is all being united that the emperor has clothes on. Listen, he doesn't have clothes on. And there is a force that is out to make you the United States an is a country of Islam. Don't, let's not fool ourselves. But we love the Muslims. We love all people. All, we love the Syrians. We love the Lebanese. We love them all. God loves them all. This is a spiritual battle against a spiritual enemy. But the danger is real. And we're asking you to take seriously this 40 days of fasting and prayer. In this church, we are. Where it's no business as usual. We don't believe it's business of, as usual around here. We've canceled all of the small groups we were going to have. And we're saying the most important thing you can do as a family, the most important thing we can do as a church, when Joel call, called for a fast... It was stop what you're doing. It's not business as usual. And he called for a solemn assembly. That means not just you by yourself. It means an assembly. It means come together with God as God's people and get on our faces and ask God for his mercy and his favor. 
And then can I say this before our brothers and sisters lead us in this song, which was, which was written for 2012 elections by a man named Daniel Webster. This song is written just for this election. I want to say this to you, and I want to say this to the woman in the mirror. Please hear me. Please don't leave the room in the spirit yet. If I don't get, if we don't get a national revival, I intend to get a personal one. Did you hear me? If we don't get a national revival, we can get a personal revival. We need to get back on our faces and seek God and see what God will do. God is more interested in meeting you. Put everything that's in your, in your way and put it on a back burner. All of our problems and all that God knows what you're dealing with. This is the time to take seriously God's call. Um, we're going to play this song. Our brothers and sisters are going to pray this song for they, they prepared it just for today. And after this song is over, I'm asking you to stay for a few more minutes. We're not having the Lord's table this morning. I'm going to ask you to do this. First of all, Jesus said that just as it was in the days of Noah, will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. You know what that means? Not many people believed. It means they laughed at Noah. Are you in the ark personally? Have you accepted Jesus Christ? I mean, made him your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, there's no time to waste. I, we encourage you here. If you're not sure you're a Christian, get one of us. Let us pray with you. This is the time for all of us. If there's something in your life that's been a battle and you know God's telling you it's got to go, this is the time to get help. We're not telling you just get rid of it. You've probably tried a thousand. Get help. This is the time to be serious with God for all of us. I'm going to ask you at the end of this song or during this song, I'm going to ask you to fill this altar. And this is what I'm asking. I'm not looking for an emotionalism. I'm not looking for anything. I'm looking for people that will say, God, help me to do this for 40 days. God, you know you need grace to fast and pray. You can't just decide you're going to do it. We need grace. We need a spirit of prayer in this place. I'm going to ask you to come forward. I'm going to ask you to just come at this altar, and we're going to pray. Just those of you that feel led to do it, we're going to pray and say, God, give me the grace to fast and pray and seek your face at this hour. I need your help to do it. God, help me.